Hey everyone, this is Kurt Franken with Leading Saints. And before we jump into this week's episode, I want to make sure we announce two important events. First one, on November 16th, 2019, we are having our annual Leading Saints Live event in uh, on the campus of uh, Solid Community College Miller Campus, which is in Sandy, Utah. It's on a Saturday, November 16th, starting about roughly about 8 o'clock in the morning until about 4.30. We're having five phenomenal speakers, including Jody Moore, Dan Duckworth, Wendy Ulrich, Anthony Sweat, and myself. And we will uh, jump into, these are individuals who've been on the podcast and been very popular on the podcast. And so come listen to them live. And if you're not available to come, if you're not in Utah to available to attend in person, uh, you won't get all of the content, but you'll get most of it as we are going to stream it online so that you can access it. But you still need to register. So if you go to leadingsaints.org, right there on the homepage, you'll see an obvious link to click on and register for this event. We only have about 200 seats in this auditorium, and so it is most likely going to fill up. We're about halfway there. So jump in, grab your seat, or watch online. The second thing I need to announce is the 2020 Leading Saints Church History Tour, which begins on July 16th. It's a nine-day tour starting in Hilcomora or starting at the Hill Camorra, and then we're going all the way to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, where it will end. And uh, everything between there, at least a lot of the historical church sites will be be hitting. Everything from, just going down the list here, the Sacred Grove, the Susquehanna River site, John Johnson Farm, Kirtland Temple, Newell K. Whitney Store, Carthage Jail, Historic Nauvoo, Nauvoo Temple, of course, and man, Adam on Diamond, it goes on and on. You can see all the itinerary and the details and how to register at leadingsaints.org slash tour. Now, this is filling up. The seat is more, or the uh, bus is more than half full. So I think there's around 20 or less seats left. So if you are wanting to be a part of this nine-day adventure with me, my wife, and, and others in the Leading Saints community, go to leadingsaints.org slash tour. To register, it would be so cool to hang out with you for nine days, and we're going to talk leadership, we're going to emphasize different leadership aspects of, of church history throughout the tour, and it is going to be awesome. So, leadingsaints.org slash tour. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I will be your host. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, this is a podcast where we strive to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead, and we are scared of no topic. We're going anywhere, any question that we can cover to help you be better prepared to lead? Well, we try and cover it here. And there's been over, I don't know, 330 or 40, okay, can I count? 340-ish episodes that you can explore and jump into. And there's some great ones out there. Really, most of them are great. Few of them, mainly mine, could use some help. But jump in. They're fantastic episodes, and I welcome you to the podcast. I hope you'll subscribe and continue to listen. Now, in this episode, we talk with Davis Smith, who's actually the CEO and founder of Cotopaxi. And if you're not familiar with Cotopaxi, I don't think you're the outdoorsy type. Cotopaxi is an outdoor brand, apparel brand, and really a company that has a mission for good. They're not uh, just you know creating outerwear just to create outerwear, but they actually have a mission where they donate all their profits to helping overcome poverty in the world. And their mission and their approach to business is so inspiring. And so I've been, a few people recommended, I reach out to Davis and he was at a BYU Management Society luncheon not too long ago. And I approached him and said, hey, let's do a podcast. He said, hey, sounds good. So I went downtown to his uh, corporate office of Cotopaxi 
and uh, there we recorded a fantastic interview. Now, he also serves as a counselor in a stake presidency and in the Salt Lake area. And so he's got a great perspective, not only uh, corporate leadership or business leadership, but also in church leadership. And some of these concepts he's discussed are, are really helpful. And uh, he does some great book recommendations and really some fantastic principles of how we can turn our work into a deeper mission and have a deeper vision as far as what we're trying to accomplish and having a positive influence in the world. So here's my interview with Davis Smith, CEO of Cotopaxi. Today, I'm in downtown Salt Lake City in the offices of Cotopaxi with the CEO, Davis Smith. How are you, Davis? Doing great. Thanks, Kurt. This yeah. is fun. A cool office here. You know, there's there's a good uh, modern vibe here, right? A millennial yeah. would want to work here. Yeah, this is this is a place where lots of millennials work. You know, it's a really cool building. Uh, I mean, being downtown's fun, lots of energy, but yeah. we're in a, a historic building right on the corner of Main Street and 100 South. So this is one block south of, of Temple Square on wow. Main Street. Yeah. And uh, this building was built on the lot where one of Brigham Young's counselors had his home. Really? And then, wow. Yeah. And then in the, in the late 1800s, they tore down what had, what had become the post office. I, I, I not, it wasn't totally clear to me if the post office was a conver- his home that was converted to the post office or what, but they ended up building the what's called the Crandall Building, which was the first skyscraper in Utah. Seven stories, but in the late 1800s, they called this a that skyscraper. That was huge, right? It was huge, yeah. <laughs> And this was a bank. And so we're in uh, the main floor, kind of street level floor, and then the two floors above that mm-hmm. uh, where our offices are. So I, I'm sure many people are familiar with, with Cotopaxi, but if someone isn't, well, how would you put that into context for, for the audience? Yeah. So Cotopaxi is uh, it's an outdoor gear brand. We make jackets and backpacks uh, and even tents and sleeping bags. But it's more than just a gear company. It's a company that stands for specific values. And th- those values are the values of giving back and service to others and putting others ahead of yourself. We use our profits to support poverty alleviation around the world. We employ refugees and we inspire people to see the world and move them to do good. Yeah. And I definitely want to dig into that as we go here. But like you said, it's not it's not like you just saw an, an, an opportunity in the apparel industry and jumped in, but you no. wanted to bring purpose to the lifestyle that people who wear your clothes have, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was... You know, I, I'd been an entrepreneur before. I built a few different businesses before this. And my whole purpose in becoming an entrepreneur was to find a way to help other people. I, I grew up in Latin America. I moved there when I was four years old. My dad worked for the church. He, wow. he started building church buildings in, in the Caribbean. We lived in the Dominican Republic and, and we moved there in 1983. So again, I was four years old and the church was very new there. Of course, this is after the 1978 change. Yeah. So uh, a lot of these these places all of a sudden started seeing a lot of conversion to the church. And so my dad moved there. We started building churches there. And then we moved to, to Puerto Rico for five years where he uh, traveled around the Caribbean. And then we moved to South America. But I spent my entire childhood and some of my teenage years living in countries that were really known for their poverty. And Wow. One of my earliest memories was seeing children completely naked on the sides of the street mm. in the Dominican Republic. And as a four-year-old, just being completely shocked, not understanding why my life was different from theirs. And clearly, we were not a wealthy family. You know, my dad worked yeah. for the church. Sure, but sure. We had eight kids in my family, a very large family. But I had opportunities that these other kids would never have. And it had nothing to do with how smart I was or how ambitious I was or how hardworking I was compared to them. It was only because of where I was born. And yeah. so from the time I was a child, I knew 
I had a responsibility to find a way to use whatever talents I had to help other people. Wow, that's powerful. So when people ask you, where did you grow up? Do you say Latin America? I mean, it sounds yeah. like you're bouncing around. Yeah, it's a, I, it's a, I'm confused myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I usually say Latin America, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And uh, obviously your father working for the church, pretty traditional Latter-day Saint family. Yeah, 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 very traditional, you know, very... Uh, my parents are both, uh, I don't know what generation, long, you know, uh-huh. my, my dad's relatives converted to the church in England and in Norway in the, in the late 1800s. Uh-huh. So they were, they converted a little bit later, but they, they moved here in, I think, 1892, both sides of his family. My mom's side of the family was earlier than that. So she has some pioneer ancestors. And so, yeah, very traditional. You know, my, my dad, uh, has you know worked for the church basically my entire life, and he still he still work he works at BYU now. Oh wow! Overseeing all their new buildings, he built temples during the present Hinckley era for a, a number of years. <laughs> built a lot of temples around wow. Latin America. So yeah, it was uh, my dad was you know my bishop as a teenager and all those uh-huh. kind of things. That, yeah, those typical experiences yeah. that a lot have. So did yeah. you grow up speaking Spanish then? Yeah, we grew up speaking Spanish. You know, interestingly, my my parents when we moved to Puerto Rico. My parents really wanted us to number one learn the language well, yeah, and they also wanted us to understand the culture that we grew up in, and so they didn't put us in the American speaking or English speaking American school or international school. They they put us into a Jesuit Catholic school that was all Spanish. Wow! And so we went to the school called Academia San Ignacio, and it was just a lot of my teachers were nuns. I grew up. All my classmates, you know, preparing for first communion. We did, you know, we <laughs> we did all the prayers, you know, the Catholic yeah, prayers every yeah, day, sure. and I developed a deep respect for the Catholic Church and for its members, and yeah. that helped me a lot as I became a missionary in South America and was able to really connect deeply with these people. Not because I only, you know, not only because I grew up there, but because I I understood where they came from religiously. Yeah, yeah, because like you said, your mother wanted you to to experience the culture, not just the language or, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. That, that became helpful. Yeah. So how did that, how would you describe the development of your faith then being in those, you know, Catholic schools and, you know, mm-hmm. being surrounded by religion, even though it maybe wasn't exactly your same theology, how did that impact the, your Well, I mean, it, it was amazing because I had a lot of questions Yeah. and my parents, my parents did a great job looking back. I see what a great job they did at teaching us mm. the gospel and you know, as a 12 and 13 year old, I, I knew my scriptures. I knew, I understood our doctrine mm-hmm. because I saw, I was surrounded by people that believed differently. And I, I had questions around those things. And it was, I think, a very healthy way to, to learn about the gospel as a child. Hmm. And so, uh, when it came time to serve a mission, was that a no-brainer for you? It was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. I I will say, you know, my there are some people that I think are born with very deep faith. Mm-hmm. And maybe have never even questioned. My mother is like that. I'm not like that. Yeah. From the time I was a child, I always had a lot of questions. And I still have a lot of questions. And what I've learned throughout my life is that that's okay. Not all my questions are going to be answered. Mm -hmm. And some of them have been answered through study, through prayer. But there are plenty of things that I don't understand. And I think that's part of our mortal probation yeah. is to to go through uncertainty and to have to rely on the Lord and to have to have faith. That's, again, part of the plan. Satan's plan was the plan where we had no questions, no doubts, everything was just perfect. 
that's not what we came here for. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. But as far as going on a mission, I always wanted to go. Yeah. So in that time came though, you, you had gone through, you'd ask a lot of questions and things and, and, mm-hmm. but you'd sort of reconciled the fact that it's okay to have questions and, but you had certain beliefs to go out and surf. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I loved my mission. I served in the Cochabamba Bolivia mission. Oh, wow. And I, I don't know there's anyone as obsessed with their mission as I am. <laughs> I, yeah. I go back a lot. That's my cool. converts are my converts for life. Yeah. And they know it. I'm guessing yeah. you had a lot of them being in Bolivia. Yeah, Bolivia. <laughs> it's a, Bolivia's, I, was, I was fortunate in that Bolivia is a very faithful place. I Actually, a year ago, in October of last year, I organized with some mission buddies a reunion uh, in Bolivia. So we had around 70 or 80 missionaries go oh, back great. to Bolivia wow. for this reunion. We had such an amazing time. But Two times on this on this trip, as I'm in a taxi and they ask me why I'm there, I, I tell them about how I was a missionary for my church there. And I start, I told them a little bit about it. And twice a taxi driver said, God sent you to my taxi to talk to me. Oh, wow. And I was like, yes, yes, he did. <laughs> of course he did. Why wouldn't he? <laughs> but that just doesn't happen other places. But in Bolivia, it did. And wow. I, it reminded me in the mission, I mean, it was, if you were willing to speak to people and talk, open your mouth you would baptize because people were ready to listen. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. That's great. So getting that mission called, were you, you know, being raised in Latin America, were you hoping to stay oh, in Latin America somewhere? Oh yeah. I, okay. I was I was so I was so happy. <laughs> you weren't hoping for Russia or something. No, I really wanted to do Latin America. I, oh, cool. My dad had worked quite a bit in Bolivia. I'd never been to Bolivia, but a lot of the churches that I that I saw or went to as a missionary were churches my dad had built. Oh, so wow, it was just kind awesome. of fun. But I, I really was hoping to serve in Latin America and Bolivia was special. It was a place that felt like home in a lot of ways. It was very similar to Ecuador where I'd, where I'd grown up as a, as a kid and teenager. And the language, you know, I, I understood the language and I just, I fell in love with, with the people. It's a landlocked country, the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. Wow. I didn't um, know that. So people, they, they, when I was serving my mission about the average per capita income was $500. So extreme poverty. Wow. And 70% of the population speaks Spanish as their second language. So huh. they speak their indigenous languages. This is when I served. It's been 20 years. So um, <laughs> it's, that's, it's evolving. Bit, it's changing. Yeah. yeah. The younger generations uh, haven't held some of those traditions in the same way. They wear the tradition, their traditional clothing, hmm. uh, a lot of them. It's, they're kind. They're, it's very, very safe. Bolivia is. And I'm in love with that country. Yeah. yeah. And it's, there's so many temples now, I can't keep track. Is there one in Bolivia? There's one, or? yeah. There, in fact, my dad was building the temple in Cochabamba when I was there. Oh, I never really? got to see him, but uh, oh, wow. But yeah, he. and then I, it was dedicated a year after my mission. So I went back with my dad for the dedication. Oh, cool. He used miles to get me down. And that kind of started my, my, my pattern of going back because yeah. I didn't have a lot of money, but I, I just started saving. My wife and I started saving and we went back together and that, we didn't go out to eat. We wouldn't go to movies. Like We'd save money so we'd go back to my mission and since then, it's just become a habit of, yeah. of going back. Well, that's great. So you come up from your mission. At what point, maybe it was even before your mission, when did you realize that you really want to be an entrepreneur? Like that was where your passion was. So I got back from my mission. I remember flying into the Salt Lake Airport and I was overwhelmed. With and your joy. family was here in Utah? When yeah, you they were here. They'd moved here. Okay. And I, I was overwhelmed with joy, just being home, being yeah. done, you know, returning and my family was there and I'd ne- I don't know if I'd ever felt so much joy, you know, to be home. And then we got in the car, we drove to my parents' home. And when we pulled up to the house, 
I just lost it. Mm-hmm. I was so emotional. All those feelings of kind of joy in some ways went away. Um, I just felt uh, an immense amount of guilt living here. Yeah. Again, not that my family's super wealthy, but you know, going back to a nice home and just being able to get in your own car and all these things that you know, I could lay on the ground on the carpet. It was like, I can't believe there's carpet and yeah. I can wash my clothes in a washing machine instead of by hand. And I felt a lot of a lot of guilt for a few weeks and it was it was a difficult it was a difficult adjustment back home. But I read an article shortly thereafter in the church news about a man named Steve Gibson. And he was an entrepreneur, probably late fifties, maybe sixty years old. He and his wife sold their business. They moved to the Philippines to go open a school that taught entrepreneurship to Filipino return missionaries that lived in poverty. Wow. And this article just completely inspired me. So I cut it out, put it in the front cover of my binder. And at BYU, I just walked around with this article every day for my entire time at BYU. And it was there to inspire me to... And it it wasn't... What impressed me about this article was not that he was a successful entrepreneur. That didn't even like strike me. Like I, I never thought about becoming an entrepreneur. It was the fact that he'd found a t- talents that he had that he was able to use to go lift others. And so when I was finishing my time at BYU, I was spending a Saturday on campus for a social impact conference. And as I was in between some sessions, I saw Steve Gibson, the man oh, from this wow. article, getting into an elevator. So you just recognized him? I recognized him, uh-huh. yeah. And I knew exactly who it was. So I ran down the hall, I stuck my arm in the elevator door, and it's like a movie right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I jump inside this elevator and he's trapped. He has to talk to me. And I, you know, this guy is a multimillionaire. He's changed thousands of lives. I'm a nobody. And he's acting so flattered that I recognized him. And just the nicest guy. And he says, Hey, w- you know, would you like to talk more? Would you, how about you come to my office in a couple of weeks? So I spent two weeks preparing a pitch where I was going to convince him to let me go work for him. And I wanted to help him expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America, where I grew up. And the whole time he's smiling and nodding. I'm thinking, I'm nailing this. You know, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to be able to work for my idol. This is amazing. And at the end, he goes, Davis, I love how passionate you are about finding a way to do good. But what I see in you is you would be a great entrepreneur. You should go start your own business. And then 10 or 20 years down the road, you'll be able to go make your own kind of impact. Hmm. And you know what I know now is that Steve tells a lot of people they'd be great entrepreneurs. I think that's, <laughs> I wasn't special, but I, you know he gave me confidence and he became a mentor. And so I, I started my first business short a few months later with the idea of trying to find a way to to do good. And yeah. I spent ten years building two different businesses. I was lucky they they worked, but they didn't have a social mission built into them. I was still trying to figure out that mission piece. Yeah. And, eventually and, landed here. And what were those? Were they apparel companies as well? No, or no they were both e-commerce businesses. One, oh, okay. one here in Utah. I did that for six years and then sold it. I did it with my cousin. We both went to business school when we, when we sold it. So I, I went to the Wharton School in Pennsylvania and my cousin went to Harvard Business School in Boston. And then we brainstormed ideas together. We spent uh, the full two years in school exploring. We had 60 different business ideas we came up with and narrowed it down to four and then down to one. And when we graduated, we moved down to Brazil and launched a business, an e-commerce business there. Oh, cool. And so we did that. We had, you know, it grew really quickly. We had like 300 employees within 18 months of our launch and, you know, certainly some real challenges in building a business in Brazil. But ultimately, I felt it was time for me to go focus on what I'd always known I wanted to focus on, which yeah. was giving back. And yeah. so I, I moved back to the US, chose to move to Salt Lake and, and build a business that was all about helping others and giving. Oh, that's great. And so it's almost like you did follow that pattern that that mentor 
uh, suggested yeah. to you that yeah. now you are in a position to to do some good. Absolutely. Right? Nice. Yeah. So uh, how how did you uh, where did Cotopaxi begin and and how did you then transition that to a, a social mission? So I I knew I was going to come back to the US and build something with a social mission. I uh-huh. didn't even know what the business would be, but I knew it would be through business. I believe in the power of business to, to impact lives and to to be a positive in the world. And so I quickly narrowed it down to the outdoor industry. I felt there was an opportunity. It's a very large industry. I felt there was a chance to go build a brand that was built around people that didn't exist. There were a lot of brands built around the environment and protecting the environment, which I love. I love the world that we live in and sure. believe we need to protect it. But nothing was built around helping people. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I moved to Utah and uh, went you know, straight out to Silicon Valley where I had contacts. My last business, we'd raised a bunch of venture capital for that business. And so I went to Silicon Valley and, and told this vision, shared my vision for what I wanted to build, a, a business that could do good in the world, but that also would, that could grow. And I believed I could build the next, the next big outdoor brand, the next Patagonia, the next The North Face, the next mm-hmm. Columbia, but all built around this, this generation, this younger generation that really was passionate about, about helping people. Yeah. And so I launched in 2014. The day that we turned on our website, we had a huge event that we called the Questival. It was a 24-hour adventure race that you'd form a team and everyone that, that did the race got one of our backpacks and then they spent 24 hours completing challenges. We'd give them hundreds of challenges to choose from. You can go volunteer in the community in some way, you know, work for not go spend time at a nonprofit or a soup kitchen, you know, serving others. You could we did a flash mob like picking up litter on the Jordan River Trail. You know, we had all these challenges around, you know, go go do a hike or climb a mountain or <laughs> catch a fish and cook it over a fire that you built yourself or make uh-huh. your own shelter and sleep in it or sleep in a tent. I mean, you could kind of create your own experience and you got different points depending on what you chose to do. And, and we had a few thousand people show up to that event the day of our launch and we had 30,000 social media posts that day. And wow. so it was a great way to... And it's like the same the day brand. that you're launching the brand. Yeah. So people generally don't know about They had no brand. idea who we yeah. were. Yeah. Wow. The way we got people to know about it is we, we went on uh, the KSL Classifieds and we bought two llamas. <laughs> and uh, we started showing up on college campuses with these llamas telling people, you know, come to the Questival. It was, wow. uh, yeah, a lot of kind of grassroots yeah. guerrilla marketing. Yeah. So I want to sort of pivot back to this, the whole social mission angle, because I think a lot of people would think, well, what I'm going to do is you know, I'm going to go sell real estate and, you know, that'll be my day job and get some money. But then I'll have this nonprofit that's sort of this own entity that, yeah, I can make a difference through that. But y- you saw it differently as combining them. Is that is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah. You know, this was, um, it was really a, a unique experience for me. When I was in Brazil, I had been thinking about this for over a decade, uh-huh. uh, this idea of trying to find a way to get back. I I had set a New Year's resolution with, uh, we did a family home evening where we set New Year's resolutions. And my New Year's resolution that year in 2013 was that I wanted to change somebody's life. And my wife makes fun of my goals because they're never, I don't do them right. They're supposed to be like measurable and attainable. Like I'm horrible (laughs) with my goals. But this was something that I I just, I was felt really passionate about. And my wife and I had, had done an internship for the church when I was when we were BYU students in Peru. And uh-huh. we'd had a really meaningful experience there helping others. And it was something that I thought about constantly. And I this was something I was praying about. I was thinking about every single day and asking the Lord to help me find someone that I could help. And one night as I was in bed, I just I started having these ideas come to me about how I could make a difference. And I rolled over and I started putting some of the ideas into my phone. 
And I thought I'd be able to go back to sleep and I couldn't. I just kept, more ideas kept flowing to my head. I ended up getting out of bed and I went and sat on the couch and I ended up spending the next two days and two nights on that couch. I didn't sleep. I, I've never had an experience like this before. I don't think I ever will again. Hmm. It was as if God was telling me how he could use me. Hmm. And the name of the company, the, our slogan, Gear for Good, the Questival, our entire business model, everything in that 48 hours was given to me. And I immediately went in and resigned from my role as, as co-CEO of, this, of my business there. And I knew what I needed to do and how to do it. And it was, I felt just so inspired that I could make a much bigger difference by using this business to go do good than if I did something on my own. Yeah. Because we can, we can inspire others to do good along with us. We can inspire other companies and show them how big of an impact you can have as a business. And we can incorporate that do good mission into every aspect of what we do. So we use our profits to support poverty alleviation. To date, we've given 100% of our profits and more to causes, to nonprofit, nonprofits around the world that, that help alleviate global poverty in the, in the poorest communities in the world. You know, we, if you order something from our website, you get a handwritten thank you card written by a refugee that's been resettled here in Utah. Oh, wow. It's that's their great. first job. So they write the thank you card in their native language since they're still learning English. They join a job club. Our employees help run with the International Rescue Committee, the IRC, and we teach them how to create a resume, how to do a job interview, how to follow up after the job interview. We use our supply chain to impact lives. We, the socks I'm wearing right now are made of llama wool, <laughs> and we developed a supply chain in Bolivia in my area where I served, oh, wow. one of my areas where I served. Wow. And we are buying llama wool from these little communities all up and down Bolivia that we then use to make sweaters or socks or other great products. So we've really kind of integrated this this mission into every aspect of what we do. Yeah. So this is where obviously this podcast being about, you know focus on leadership and Latter-day Saint leaders and helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. I'm intrigued by this because oftentimes you know in our wards and stakes we're sort of spoiled in a way that it's structured very well, you know, has decades of experience of how we structure wards and you know and but this concept of social mission, it can be, it's so easy to sort of feel like, well, on Sunday we go to church and yeah, we know ordinances are important and we partake of ordinances and we magnify our calling and we minister to others and serve and that's all good. But I almost feel like it can be so routine at times where it doesn't, where obviously when you, you show up to, to work here and you're you're running an apparel company, but at the same time, you know, there's this broader vision. And so there's this empowerment or this, I, I don't know what I would, would call it, but there's an extra layer of energy to accomplish the goals of the, the business. And sometimes I feel like that's lost in award because it's like, okay, yeah, we're, you know, we'll just fill that box, the humanitarian box on the the tithing slip and, you know, we're, we're doing good. But any thoughts on, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, but I'm just curious, like, because there are leaders out there running an organization as a bishop, as an elders quorum president, like, how do we apply the same principles of a social mission where we really feel like we can gather around? Because I, I would imagine a staff meeting around here, you can really, like, bring people back to the core mission of like, hey, remember, we're really making a difference here, right? Yeah. You're not just doing accounting over there and marketing, yeah. right? And so any thoughts on how we could use some of these principles in the church context? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, a question I've never been asked. I, <laughs> here we uh, go. We'll see yeah, what comes out. that's great. <laughs> you know, I th- one of the things that's been special here is, is that ability to, to, to go back to the why uh-huh. and reminding people of why we're here, what we're, you know, what we're doing this for. And what I've seen is that our ability to attract and retain talent is, I've never seen anything like it in a previous business. Hmm. And it's because of the mission. And so I think as leaders in our respective organizations in the church, I think we have to remember to do that. 
we have to remember to, you know, to, to remind people of why we're here, what we're doing this for. And I think that's what's wonderful about some of these changes we're seeing recently in the church, this, this higher and holier way. It's yeah. pulling back a little bit from the traditions and just the, the monotony of what we're used to and saying, there is something bigger here. There's a reason why we're here. You know, challenging the youth to join this youth battalion. It's like, mm-hmm. there's a reason for our membership of this church. So I think whenever here in my own business, whenever I feel like we're getting away from that, it's because I haven't been speaking about it enough. Hmm. I have been reminding people of why we're here, sharing stories of the impact that we're having, which are inspiring. And so as leaders, if we can share those stories of success and uh, remind people why we're here, I think that yeah. that matters. So what does that look like in your your day-to-day, week-to-week uh, experience as the CEO? Like, How do you go about bringing up those stories or connecting mm-hmm. your your company back to the why? I do it in everything I do. Like, So I send a CEO update and I include that in the CEO, that, those stories in our CEO update. When we have an all-hands meeting, I talk about, I always bring in something about our mission. When I have a leadership meeting, I always bring up the stories of why. I talk about an, a story of impact in maybe one of the, the communities that we're working in overseas where we manufacture, or I talk about a refugee that I just worked with, and I tell their story. So it's just in every opportunity that you have, finding ways to weave that into yeah. the, you know, the, the lesson that you're teaching or the, the leadership meeting that you're holding. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, really, obviously the why of this company is going to be different of a why of a different company, even ones that are very much focal focuses on social missions. Right. And so it sounds like that, you know, every, you know, even an elders quorum needs to have a very specific why it's not just, well, because we're supposed to be like Christ and that's why we're here. Right. Mm-hmm. But to really find a specific mission and focus so you can share those stories. Right? Absolutely. I think, you know, in our stake, our stake president has identified five five focuses of our Hmm. stake that we're all working towards. And it's a constant reminder, you know, every time he's, you know, in state conference or when he's visiting a ward, like we're talking about these things. And I think, you know, finding ways to, to push that down into the different organizations where they're also talking about those same values, those same focus points. So yeah, I think just making sure that it's talked about, you know, that, that is, we need everyone to be a keeper of the flame. It can't just be a stake president or a bishop. Uh, it can't just be a CEO. Everyone in the, organiza- in the organization needs to have caught fire and mm-hmm. they need to be a keeper of that flame that they can pass that torch on to others. Because if it's just the bishop or just the stake president it just, or just the CEO, it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and reflecting on the why is what keeps that flame going, right? Exactly. And how does, I, I would imagine, I mean, statistically speaking, you have so many employees and you're going to come across one or two that they generally appreciate the mission, but they're just not on fire about it or they, they've forgotten about it. Any, any ideas of how you approach that individual? Obviously, in the, the secular world, you just say, listen, this isn't a good fit. Maybe you should try to find another, <laughs> yeah. another job, but that doesn't work at, doesn't uh, work at the church. church. Yeah. <laughs> so any thoughts on like how to igniting that fire in, in specific individuals? Yeah. You know, we have had that a few times where we had maybe an employee that was really on fire about the mission. And then for one reason or another, they forget. Mm-hmm. And... For us, a lot of it is, I think it's spending one-on-one time with that employee. It's listening to them. I think there's a lot of love in listening. Hmm. And because usually when they've lost that fire, there's something bigger going on. And so that's one of my key focuses is to love and listen and to care for my team. And if, there's, if they've lost that fire, it's because something else is going on. 
And so my job is to figure out what that is and to figure out how I can take away that burden as much as I can. And I don't know that completely applies in the church, but I think there's something something there for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, that's helpful. It's and obviously sort of transitioning a little bit into just sort of your your focus and efforts as a CEO, being a leader of this organization, which I'm sure a lot of it is is uh, appears in your in your church leadership as well. But as far as like the day to day like your intentional actions of being a good leader. I mean, do you meet with people regularly this to, so that you have opportunities to listen or what, are, what else comes to yeah. mind as far as your leadership here? Yeah, obviously, you know, being present is is a part of that. And as a CEO, like I, I travel a bit, so like that, bet, that yeah. makes it a challenge. But that's where I found when I'm here, I'm... I'm meeting with people. I don't have an office. I don't have a door to close. Oh, really? I, I, I move around the office. I sit at different tables and I get to interact with my team. I, I block out hours each week where I have nothing on my calendar, that, which is tough to do, but where I block out a few hours each week where during that time I spend going around the office and connecting with people, talking to individuals, asking them how things are going, asking them, you know, what are you excited about? What are the challenges you're facing? What can we do? or stop doing to make your, your, your job better. Hmm. You know, I, I send, I started sending these CEO updates where before when it was a small team, I didn't have to do that, but uh, it's just in constantly communicating to the team and reminding them what we're focused on. Yeah. And, and how many employees do you have in your organization? We have about 85 okay. or 90. Yeah. Good. So you're, you're like a busy, Relatively small. Yeah. Well, a good busy elder scorn president, sure, right? Exactly. About 85. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> nice. Uh, and so, with I, I I'm intrigued by this no office approach. I mean, obviously it doesn't take much to work these days. I mean, maybe a good laptop and and your yeah. phone and your yeah. scent, especially if you travel a lot. So, is there um because there's this concept of you know not having an office because sometimes you know especially in a bishop or stake president context there is an office yeah. and you come and you to one. the office yeah. Yeah. and and obviously there's instances there but also this idea of just sort of being mobile, right? In a ward or, or making visits in homes and, and being, minister, being present. What, yeah, this whole focus on ministry. Right? That's what it's all about, right? And, yeah. this, and these changes, these recent changes around getting rid of the ward young men's presidency. Right, and yeah. Getting the the bishop and his counselors to be connected with the young men and, and having the young women presidents and their counselors like being more directly involved with in counseling with the young women. That's what this is all about, right? It's it's less of, I'm going to close the door and you can come into my office if you ever need to talk about something versus like, I'm going to be in your classes every Sunday. Yeah. I'm going to be showing up, you know, on activities on during the week. I'm going to be showing up at your house to see how you're doing. I mean, that's what the, that's what this, this higher and holier way is yeah. all about. Yeah, for sure. And I would imagine there's employees here that feel like, because you it's not like you catch someone in the in the hallway and you're and you're suddenly in this deep conversation about you know their inner desires and purpose, but it may get there. But sometimes it's just helpful for that you know that they have four kids and one's was sick last week, right? Yeah. Like it's just those those little conversations that then make you more present for the big conversations. Absolutely, I think I recently read a book that I loved and I had my whole team read it. But it, the whole the whole premise of this book was that people improve when you give them feedback. But you can't give feedback if you don't have a high degree of care for people first. Huh. And so if I just came into the office and I told everyone, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, it just wouldn't go so well. But when they know I care deeply about them, when I know about their mom that just went through cancer treatment, or when I know that they have a brother that's, that's you know going through some depression, and I, they feel a deep concern and care for them and love, then when I say, hey, there's something that I saw that I think 
we can work on. Like they're all over it. You know, yeah. they're, they, and they feel so grateful that I cared enough to give them hard feedback that can be sometimes uncomfortable. And so I think of, you know, the youth in our church and it's the same thing. We have to be able to first show them how deeply we care about them, how much we love them. And then when we give them feedback, they're going to be open to that. They're going to be, they're anxious for that. They want to be good. They want to improve. They want to be prepared to serve a mission, prepared to, to marry in the temple. They want to gain a testimony if they haven't had that yet. And so um, we can give them that counsel when they know we love them. Yeah. So I got to ask, what's the book? Or I'll get several emails. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the book's called Radical Candor. Oh, yeah. Have yeah. you read this? I, I haven't yeah. read it, but uh, it's definitely near the top of my list. My brother's reading it right now. He's oh, yeah. a stake president. And he's, oh, yeah, yeah. He's loving it. It's a great book. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so because this, as far as candor goes, or the, it really comes, what I've learned over several interviews with different people is like, at the end of the day, the relationship matters the most rather than like the numbers or anything. And and the numbers are important, but you'll never get to the numbers without establishing those relationships. Right? Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, anything else about, uh, and I'm sure there's a whole list and I'm sure there's future Davis Smith books that are that are <laughs> in your brain that'll, that'll come out, but any other leadership principles or, or, or modes of operation that you're really intentional about in your leadership? Yeah. One of the other things I'm, I'm really intentional about is culture. And so when I started this business, before we sold anything, before we even talked about what our go-to-market strategy was, the first thing we talked about was our core values. I actually flew in from Brazil. I had a small team of people that I had kind of pieced together that I wanted to go launch this business with that I felt I needed. And we went to a cabin in, in Utah. Uh, some of these people had never been to Utah before. And we sat in this cabin and I laid out a vision for what and why I wanted to build this business. We didn't talk about product that we were going to make or anything. We talked about our core values and we identified those core values. And then we built all of our, we built rituals and traditions around those core values that ended up defining our culture and this entire brand. And so I've done the same thing in my family. I realized after a few years that I'd I made the mistake. I always talk about building culture deliberately and not, you know, through design, not by default. And I learned that because I made mistakes in my first businesses by not doing that. It was just the culture happened by default instead of by design. And I was driving home from work one day and I realized I had not even done this in the organization that mattered the most to me, my own family. Hmm. And so my wife and I sat down and we identified our family's core values. We sat down with our our two oldest girls and we helped we asked them and they helped us define those and then we we built rituals and traditions around those five core values that we had identified as a family we each of the five core values is tied to a letter in our last name which is smith s-m-i-t-h and we have a weekly meeting family home meeting and we yeah. talk about how we're doing and <laughs> yeah. you know how those those core values are and you know where we can make improvements but uh, we saw changes happen as we did that. You know, one of I remember coming home from work and my my girls loved this this show on on Netflix that they'd always be watching. And I, and I always think, man, why don't you read a book instead of like have the TV on? Because I'm Typical not a TV. Dad, yeah, right? I know, and I'm not a TV watcher. So it always I always tell them, why you guys should be reading. You know, why, find a book that you love, or let me help let me help you find a book. And they'd be like annoyed by that. And but one of our the I in our of our core values uh, stands for being intellectually curious. And so we had this, we created a tradition on Sunday. We'd spend an hour together as a family. We'd get all these blankets and pillows and we'd bring some snacks and we'd all cuddle in, my, in the master bedroom together and we'd read books. Every one of us read our own book. And after an hour, 
we'd share what our favorite learning was from the book. And pretty soon I saw my girls reading books during the week and like <laughs> they're not watching that show anymore. Wow. You know, it's like it changed our family culture. Yeah. And, uh, you know, ultimately our core values define our behaviors and our behaviors define our culture and the culture ends up defining our outcomes. Yeah. And, and I love this concept as far as like the whole idea of culture. I just, I'm obsessed with as far as learning more about it because it truly is like the, like if you have a negative culture and even, even some of your social missions are pure, like it'll never work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so really f understanding how culture is built because you have to do it by design or else you'll default to whatever's there. And, yeah. and it's so easy sometimes, you know, taking it to the church context that in an elders corner release society, so what you do is you show up on Sunday, you have a lesson and this person reads that paragraph, that person, that, but without sort of calling a timeout and getting back to what are our core values as a quorum, and then this concept of having rituals and traditions to, to facilitate that, mm -hmm. right, and keep it going. And then I love this idea. I, I wrote down, sit in a cabin. Like every organization needs a cabin to sit in, whether it's a, yeah. a realistic cabin or just in theory that that may be your core meeting. But sometimes you have to get out of that uh, rote uh, tradition that's always happened and, and get your quorum out of there and say... And, and go to a cabin, go to a campground, go mm -hmm. to, to a park, wherever, and say, all right, we're going to discuss core values. Because it's almost like you can't, you didn't take all your team to the office building and talk about yeah. an office. You had to get out. And that yeah. was a, a big step, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's one other concept that I'm, I'm really, that I, I basically, I, you know, I have a testimony about this concept, which is that when we look outside of ourselves, we're able to connect with God in a really special way. And about four years ago, my cousin and I, we went on a trip where we, we went with a, a couple of their friends. We spent eight months training where we kayaked from Cuba to Florida. And uh, it's a 124 miles. It took 35 hours. There's no sleeping. You paddle through the night. So two nights. Wow. Um, you even eat while you're paddling. I mean, there's just no stopping. And the first eight hours was just was awful. I mean, just grueling, uh, just <laughs> <I can imagine. laughs> super painful and your head's just kind of down and you're kind of in your own head. And there came a time where I lifted up my head and I talked to my paddling partner and just said, we got this, you know, McKay, we've got this. And, you know, he's calling back to me and, you know, pretty soon it's like, we're calling it to the other kayaker, you know, the other team, like saying the same thing. And, all of a sudden, it was like it completely changed the way we felt. And I felt this in the mission where you lift your head up and it's not about you anymore. And uh, you're lifting others. And all of a sudden, your burden's lighter. And, you know, when we were talking earlier, I mentioned I, I'm in a stake presidency right now. And I felt the same thing. Like maybe the first time since in the same way, like since my mission where it wasn't about me. It was about lifting my head and looking at how I can lift others and how I can serve others. And there's something really special about your ability to connect to God and to hear his voice when you're doing that. And it sounds like that principle of lifting your head is most important when you're, I mean, when you're sort of bogged down and under a lot of pressure, your head kind of goes down and, and sort of lift your head and look for someone to serve, right? Yeah. Wow. And we all know there's a lot of reasons to put your head down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's life is not easy. It's, yeah. It can be really sad. It can be challenging. There's some real struggles that we can have, and yeah. uh, when we lift our head, yeah, and uh, yeah, I appreciate it's, it's that amazing. that that principle because you know I, I went through about a decade of my life, you know, serving as bishop in a in a state presidency, and and it sort of like people force you to lift your head at that point, like it's mm -hmm. your job to lift your head. But now that you know I'm not in that intense 
former leadership experience, sometimes it's easy to sort of let your head droop and say, well, it's the other guy's job to lift mm-hmm. his head, right? But it's so energizing for my personal experience when I have lifted my head and said, okay, you know, what what difference can I make in this quorum, you know, even though I'm not in the presidency or, but I'm still a member of this quorum. Yeah, right? I think that's exactly right. And I think that's what... I- that's what I hope I can do because uh, yeah. you're right. Sometimes when you get asked to be a really society president or the young woman's first counselor, like that's when you lift your head. And my goal is to never put my head back down. Yeah. And you got to stay busy and stay yeah. engaged, right? Absolutely. How about anything in, in particular with your experience in service as in the state presidency? It's, it hasn't been a long time. You mentioned yeah. before you hit record, but but anything that you're re- you're really being intentional about, you mentioned these five points that your stake president has, but yeah. anything else that would be worth mentioning? So it's been a year and a half and, uh, you know, I'm almost 20 years junior from the stake president and the first counselor. So <laughs> I'm, I'm the one that's in learning mode mm-hmm. and it's been just such a blessing to be serving with them and to learn from these amazing men. But one of the things that uh, I have been thinking a lot about, and so is our entire stake presidency, is around how do we help those that have faith that's been challenged Hmm. or that's been changed? And, you know, I just, I gave a talk on this two weeks ago in our state conference. And I think we need to give people permission to have questions. Hmm. I think gone are the days that we just bear our testimony to someone when they're struggling with a question. Yeah. We need to be persistent in searching for answers and asking for answers. And, I think there's also sometimes a wide gap between those that we see as believers and those that we see as unbelievers. And the reality is there's a large spectrum. And there are people that maybe don't even feel comfortable talking about where they are on that spectrum. But there is a place for them in this church for all of them, no matter how great your faith or how small it is. And if people have questions, there's nothing wrong with them. It's okay. And we can figure those out together. Our job is to love and to listen, and their job is to be persistent and to be patient because they're not going to get answers to all their questions, and we can't expect that. So that's something that as a stake we're, we're thinking a lot about, one of the things that we're, we're thinking a lot about. Yeah, that's cool. So anything we, uh, I'm sure we could go on and on, but anything we've missed that you would like to mention as far as uh, your efforts as a leader? Have we covered it all? Uh, I think so. I mean... <laughs> I, I, maybe one last thought. You know, I I love um, the CEO of LinkedIn came here to Utah a few years ago, and he he spoke about something that I just really love that really resonated with me, which was this concept of of compassionate leadership and compassionate management, and it's something we've incorporated here at Cotopaxi, which is to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to care about people deeply, and I think that's it. Kind of goes along with what we've talked about earlier, but. I just love this concept of of compassionate leadership. And I think the ultimate example is, of course, Jesus Christ, someone that was so compassionate, full of compassion and love for everyone, regardless of whether they were a publican or whether they were a a beggar or blind or with leprosy, he loved everyone equally. And so that's something that uh, as a leader, I'm, we're trying to, and as leaders in our organization, we're trying to replicate. Nice. So I got one more question for you, but before we do, uh, if uh, where would you send people? They want to know more about uh, what you're doing at Cotopaxi and maybe even how, yeah. how to purchase uh, some apparel. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, you can go to our website, cotopaxi.com, which is C-O-T-O-P-A-X-I. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow me on Instagram if you want. Yeah, uh, you're a good Davis. follow. I follow you there. Okay, Davis yep. <laughs> M. 
Smith. And uh, yeah, we're just passionate about what we're doing, finding a way to do a little bit of good in the world. And so if there's something that you're passionate about, feel free to read more about what we do and support us as, as you see fit. That's awesome. So the last question I have is uh, in the context of you serving as a CEO of Cotopaxi that has such a strong social mission, how has being a leader with a social mission uh, helped you be a better disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, I think the greatest part about this is that it's something I live every day. So I don't have to separate who I am at, at church or at home from my work. It's I'm focused on the exact same thing mm. all the time. And so I think that's been really helpful. And I recognize that's not always the case for everyone in their jobs. So I, I think you get to do that a lot, uh, which is fun. Yeah. But other listeners may have a job where that's not as easy. But I guess my challenge to them would be find a way. Find a way to whether, you know, the company you work for or maybe things that you're doing every day, whether it's raising your kids, find ways to inject that mission into everything that you're doing. Find ways to pull in people around you to go focus on giving back. And the great thing is that a lot of companies are looking for ways to do this and they just need someone to step up and say, hey, I'd like to go lead something. As a company, would you support us if we went and did this? And I think you'll find uh, what I found is that life is just so much more fulfilling when it's focused on, on that every day. That concludes my interview with Davis Smith. I hope you were inspired like I, I I was. I actually am currently reading the Radical Candor book and I'm loving it. Fantastic book. I'm about 20% into it and really just looking forward to every time I get to pick it up and, and read further. Solid principles. Again, go check it out. Now, if you know of anybody else I should reach out to like Davis Smith, who's a fantastic leader, I would love to hear it. Actually, I want to give a shout out to Dave Latham, who emailed me long ago. This is like back in 2008. He emailed me and said, hey, reach out to Davis Smith. And that began the ball rolling to the point where this this episode, this fantastic episode came because somebody recommended I reach out to him. So who is it in your life that is a fantastic leader that we need to share with the world? I'd love to hear it. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And there you can uh, give me all the information. And it would be helpful if you maybe gave the individual a heads up, see if they'd be open to it. So I'm not just calling them out of nowhere and uh, asking them to be interviewed on a podcast they maybe never heard of. But I mean, come on, <laughs> who's not heard of leading saints? Am I right? Okay. A lot of people, but nonetheless, I'd love to get some more fantastic individuals like Davis Smith on the podcast. And don't forget the two important events coming up, the Leading Saints Live November 16th event happening in Sandy, Utah. Go to leadingsaints.org and you'll see a place to click on to see uh, how to register, and then also the 2020 Leading Saints Church History Tour. You see all the details by going to leadingsaints.org slash tour. Be fun to have you there. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.